Love this podcast? Support this show through the Acast Supporter feature. It's up to you how much you give and there's no regular commitment. Just hit the link in the show description to support now. Hello, I'm Sam Fry and welcome to a brand new episode of Technique, the podcast where we speak to artists about their use of technology. So today's a Richard Adams episode where he's speaking to a wonderful digital producer, writer and storyteller. It's Hazel Green. So a number of listeners might be aware of Hazel and her work at the Pervasive Media Studio. And she does, um, well, um, sometimes the words are quite difficult. I'll let Hazel talk about that. It's the actual vocabulary that, you know, choosing what words to use. How do you describe it, this thing? Is it a thing? But um, digital storytelling seems to be okay. So we'll go with that. Okay, digital storytelling it is. Thanks, Hazel. So the conversation today is actually a little bit dated. So it happened in early 2016. It was a conversation that Richard and Hazel had essentially as a standalone podcast and it was before we even started this technique podcast but i'd say in some ways it was a bit of an inspiration for doing this in the first place and it's a really interesting conversation between richard and hazel about digital how it's changed over the years and storytelling in general it's also a little bit longer than some of our other episodes but I'm hoping you like the style as it's a lot more conversational. The conversation starts by talking a little bit about digital as a word in the first place. So I'll leave it over to Richard and Hazel. Hey, Richard, what do you think about the word digital? I'm finding less and less... I'm finding it quite hard when I use the word digital because I don't see anything as digital anymore. They're just mainstream and they're just different channels and technologies. Yeah, um, yeah, that's it, isn't it? Because I'm ten years ago, the language we had to come up with, because we were, this was before smartphones. We were using bits and bobs and sort of plugging things together, bits of shopbot, bits of paraphernalia like uh, accelerometers and cameras and microphones and things like the HP iPack, which came out in 2007. Well, of course, you you were working at HP, weren't you, uh, or you did work with them at the labs in Bristol? That's right, yeah. I was was actually artist-in-residence around 2006, 7, 8, somewhere around there. It's interesting, sorry, that's an interesting time, and it's worth reminding Mm. anybody who listens that that's the point at which... YouTube appeared, and that's yeah. the point at which the smartphone appeared, effectively, as we know it. Yeah, yeah, that's right. The iPhone 2007 mm. and Android 2008. I say that with confidence because I've just looked it up on Wikipedia <laughs> <laughs> just before Not we started. Wikipedia would be wrong. Um... Uh, my my, my, <laughs> my mum uh, revealed to me uh, yesterday that she thought WikiLeaks and Wikipedia were the same thing. And so she, <laughs> she was really worried when I said I like Wikipedia and I've been using it. She thought um... I was going to have to go and live in an embassy. <laughs> <laughs> well, that's a story in itself, isn't it? I know, um... but we... I sound like that. We sound like that to um, the 
my students at the university, you know. Anyway, so, yeah, 2007, 2008, I was artist in residence at HP Labs in Bristol and got to sort of use and mess about with some of the things that they had um, already produced as products, like their app, which was called Mscape, which was for the IPAC, which was one of these PDAs, Personal Digital Assistant, before it was, there wasn't well, a mobile. Back, yeah, anybody's listening who doesn't really remember things like that. They were, I think, I remember the iPad. It was, it was almost the iPhone without the phone bit. That's right. Yeah. So it's yeah. It didn't. It wasn't a, a mobile phone. It was more like a like the BlackBerry was in the beginning. So it's a screen with a media player, with a um, a little keyboard. With a what do you call it, like a, a poker? <laughs> stylus. Stylus. Excuse yeah. me. How could I forget that? I used to have. I used to have. A well, they're back in fashion on the new iPad. Um, I used to have a stylophone. Did you? Yeah. With, did I? Yeah, yeah, the Rolf Harris one. Oh, we don't mention his name anymore. Anyway, so yeah, they were like that. It was before people would have those separately to their mobile phones. But I think that the crucial thing is that did give people um, an element of mobile pocket computing, didn't it? Yeah, yeah. I mean, I wasn't aware of them. I, you know, I didn't. It wasn't until I was able to play with them at HP, and HP was saying, "Look, we've developed our own app for this. We're interested in." locative or locative as some people insist on saying locative locative media as in the ipac had a built-in gps navigation unit um sort of gps mapping on it so which we're now used to on our smartphones of course with sort of google maps etc it had that and that was an interesting bit of kit for digital storytellers and people like the HP Labs people who were interested in in that, looking forward so to tell the us, future. Tell us what, what you did with the iPad. So with the HP Labs Mscape app, what you were able to do was um, that app gave you an interface where you could assign z- zones on the map which um, you could drop media into, that's um, video or audio, and when you, holding the device, stepped into that zone, the GPS told the device to release that media. So it really meant you were triggering media into your headphones depending on where you stood outside and anywhere in the world. Which meant then that the street, the, the anywhere outside became a sort of um, canvas for storytelling, as in what you could deliver to people in their headphones. So it could be attached to a particular place in which you were standing next to, say a, a church or you know some other landmark. You might want to send people on a little trail, so. They step into the zone near the church and then they'd start to hear a voice recorded telling them something and then the next, they'd go on to the next and the next. So it was kind of um, non-linear storytelling to an extent in that people could wander around a certain area or you could find some other way um, of getting them to, to do it in a certain order. So, 
as I recall, I think um, years ago you were a film director. You made short films. You went into theatre and radio. Had you done any interactive storytelling up to this point? Till that point, no. Other than, and this is where you know I'm 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 sort of keen to sort of bring this up in these conversations. Other than, I was a street theatre performer for many years, for about twelve years on and off with a theatre company called the Natural Theatre Company, who are based in Bath. And that meant interacting with the public when they weren't expecting it in public places or at uh, festivals or in uh, private events. Um, So you're appearing in front of them as a character, as a group of characters, as a scenario, um, when they're least expecting it. And the key thing for us as natural theatre was not to piss people off because we've all sat outside a cafe, maybe on holiday, and up comes a comedy waiter or something, a clown. There's quite a lot of comedy waiters in in traditional restaurants. Right, yeah. Yeah. Boom, boom. Yeah, that's fine. (laughs) Uh, But when someone is um, clowning it up and toddling towards you, you it's the last thing you want is for for them to be bothering you. So it absolutely weren't about that. So it's not about annoying people. It was about having extremely high-quality, detailed costume and makeup um, and to pass through a space to, to amuse and delight and interest the public and only interact with them when invited. And those rules are what I've kept throughout um, all my creations of interactiveness, um, albeit most of them through a digital means, either on the internet as characters, um, writing, either, you know, um, emails or comments with the audience as a character or by directing actors in video um, because you're appearing in people's lives in their everyday spaces, whether it's on their computers when, they, when they're doing their other types of business or on their phones when they're out and about. So this is one of the big, I think, um, philosophical questions about where interactive or future media and ent- entertainment. So go back to this, this um, you know, the alternate reality game, I think, uh, the ARG at HP. Mm. That was very much, um, it sounds like, anyway, it sounds like very much a continuation of your street theatre work, but with an intermediating technology. Whereas the next thing I think you you sort of jumped to was um, a YouTube drama, Kate Modern, which wasn't in people's spaces, physical spaces, I suppose. It it was it was um, it was occasionally it was in fact so I mean just to go back a little bit mm. to the alternate reality games because from my HP residence what came out of that were two major ARGs and the first one was called My Geist M E I G E I S T 
Um, and it was through that one that I first heard about this whole idea that there was a small but dedicated community of people on the Internet who already knew about these things called alternate reality games, which meant that they would work as a community to uncover and um, piece together pieces of a, a story which had been hidden like Easter eggs for them on the internet by uh, a bunch of creatives and they would remain anonymous and the mystery of the story would be pieced together at using things that look every like everyday websites and everyday email accounts but are actually in a fictional universe that's when i first learned about that mm. when i was in looking for a way of reaching an audience so it's always been about finding an audience as having um worked in theater and then made short films and a bit of stand up and that kind of thing and frustratedly um not being able to sort of get on in television because it's so limited for anyone to actually reach anyone through that those means. Finding people and communicating with them immediately through um, Web 2.0 and the immediate communications available through through the internet. That's why I got into alternate reality gaming, and that first one, my guide. Um, and the second one, which was called The Sky Remains, both part-funded by HP, they were mammoth projects, which I equate with making a TV drama w with a tiny, tiny budget. I mean, they, they certainly have that complexity in the way they play out, but do they have the, or did they have the technical complexity, for instance, that a TV drama would have, rather than just the intellectual and narrative complexity? Depends what you mean by technical. Well, I mean, I mean, you know, you know, when you make a TV series, and, and you know, we've both worked in TV. Um, I, I've never worked in TV. Have you not? Oh, I thought never. you have. Oh, never. Anyway. That's what I mean. I've never worked in TV. Well, there's always a big team of people, like film and theatre. You know, there's always a significant number of people. There's a significant amount of um, technicalities that you have to deal with, such as lighting, camera, sound, mm. all mm. of that sort of stuff. Sure. That, you know, is, is a massive overhead. Um, and even now, with, with sort of cheaper democratic technology, you know, people are still spending lots of money on kit, albeit nowhere near as much. No, we, just... we didn't, we, yeah, obviously we didn't do any of mm. that. We were making up as we went along. When I say we, there were two of us. Right. I mean, John was a, a, a boy genius, young, um, he, he had graduated, John Williams. He knew how to code the fuck out of any problem mm. um he, he he did all the kind of technical coding and designing the digital designing and i guess i was the director producer writer and, and he had lots of lots of creative ideas as well so we were a two-person team okay and it was on the back of that of each doing about 10 different jobs ourselves me using my credit card, me raising funding as we were actually uh, developing the thing. And then we ran it for eight weeks. So it was an eight week, but every day. Wow. Oh, not, ex not, not 24 seven. Cause we did get some sleep, but so it was like a live show that wasn't just on like one hour per week. It was on eight hours a day for eight months. 
And the way that we knew the audience were there was mainly through following, following them on forums uh, that are run by the Alternate Reality Gaming Network because there were other various mysterious projects like this on the go at the same time. So we would then log into the forums anonymously and watch them solving the problems as a community. And that's the difference too. So the audience we called players and they they would be working together. I've always thought that would be, in television terms, that would be you'd watch that in itself. You know, that's a, like a spectator sport yeah. in itself, watching people solving and the problems. So so those were the kinds of things that we were doing. And I used some of my actor mates from the Natural Theatre Company because I knew they could improvise because not all actors can improvise, I now realise. So I used them to play characters within my Geist and then transferred some of those characters into The Sky Remains to make it the same universe as well. So the fans, the players, got to know and love them um, through this kind of uh, intimate uh, email exchanges, which I was writing, actually, and also through their their, uh, video blogging and stuff like that. So you get to know characters that way. What were the biggest sort of problems you hit in doing this? Apart from money, money's always a problem. uh... Yeah, biggest problems were really trying not trying to help the audience the players navigate them from one clue to the next trying to make sure that they got the right amount of challenge that they wanted uh, matched with the right amount of satisfaction so it's getting the timing right because of the liveness of it and the the ease with which we found we could make new clues and new drop new little breadcrumbs as it were um we were watching on the fly and if they were struggling with a, a particular little digital puzzle that would give them a cryptic clue or they were going down a sort of bit of a a, a dead dead end moving on to the next chapter of the story we had to come up with ways of um, helping them along with that. So I would say that was the biggest problem. It was actually one of the most creative parts of it too, the most enjoyable parts of it. With my guys, there the really wasn't that any problems other than those. Okay. With the Sky Remains, we tried to do something differently and we hit problems with that because there were probably just too many barriers it was such a large scale thing. Mm. We were, what we trying to do was um, to use a whole other community of people who were using GPS technology and try and fuse them together with the alternate reality gamers. Um, and that didn't quite work. I'll just explain that. So the sky remains. Uh, it was partly a research project for, for HP Labs. They wanted to see how people would be in, engaging with alternate reality games now that HP knew about them through what we had done. Mm. Um, what John and I wanted to do was to try this, try and create a bigger audience by fusing two different communities together. So geocaching. Have you heard about geocaching? I have, but if yeah. you want to explain it, you'll feel free. Yeah, so um, 
it's it's really kind of sort of keen ramblers and walkers who have uh, GPS location devices with them to help them navigate their way around, you know, wildernesses and moors and all that kind of thing. Um, over the past few years, some of those people have developed a nice little thing where you could hide a box in a hedge or in a, you know, an old stone wall or, or whatever, and um, geotag it onto the geocaches community map so that you'd see a flag in the map online and you'd know that there was a box there so as you were going out on that particular ramble you could use your locator to find that box open it and there'd be a an actual little notepad in there in pencil so you could write a note or take a photo or something and it, it was just something that had um, occurred to people quite naturally and I thought that was a really lovely experiential thing you know it's 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 this lovely mixture of real world uh thing you know just activities nice things that people are doing being enabled by technology so we're not stuck in front of a computer screen this is my big thing is to to get us away from that so um we thought oh that's an ideal way of giving people clues to a story or chapters to a story you know and it's it's almost traditional in that you would uncover some you know hidden letters or photographs you know it's classic classic sort of uh adventure novel stuff isn't it you yeah know? it is and it's also adding a layer of um a layer of interest you know other than the walking itself for people so you know it's, it's taking part in a story that's embedded in what they do and in their landscape yeah so the, the, the sort of key thing there is, and I still don't think, we, we I mean, with all our smartphones and everything, we haven't cracked this yet. This is still not a thing which people are accepting in a mainstream way, which is engaging with fictional story while they're doing something else. That's I mean, I've seen... Um, that's, well, the, that's the main problem. Yeah, I've seen engage, people engage with factual stories, so... Uh-huh. You know, living yeah. in and around London, you see walking tours. Yeah, 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 we'll do that. All of that, we'll do that. Yeah. Um, but even like a sort of uh, Jack the Ripper tour or something or something like that, you, you, you're kind of, you're on, you're, you're not doing something else while you're doing it. You know, you're walking along, but you've deliberately gone on that. And even if somebody dressed as a Victorian um, gentleman or something appears, you People will go along with that. Hmm. But uh, uh, trying to engage people with story when they are shopping or on a ramble or doing their emails or something is still a minority thing. I mean, I, I, I kind of have a, a thing going back. You know, I, I worked on early interactive television in the early 90s and then through practically on and off till the mid-2000s. And one of the things I noticed there hmm. was, you know, all the experiments with making shows like Emmerdale Interactive and stuff that we did in the 90s, you know, they never really struck home. But what so, happened with interactive well, narratives yeah. for me on television was the rise of reality television, where you had yeah. a mm. semblance of reality and factual, but actually that was guided as a narrative. And it needed that sort of reality hook. Yeah, yeah. It's funny, isn't it? And so yeah. so, the, so you're saying the interactivity with that is the voting and the... well. The, Social media conversation around it. All of that's highly interactive. Um, 
but also it was narrative. I mean, the the, the um, Susan Boyle thing on Britain's Got Talent. If you search for that now mm. on YouTube and watch it, what they do is use the way they've set it up, the way they edit it in retrospect. They retold the Ugly Duckling story. Nice, yeah. You know, and when you watch it in the cold light of day now, that's exactly what it is. But to everybody out there, they think it's reality. So they hang on it as if it's factual and real in a way these people will walk around London yeah. with factual stories. But if you said this is fiction, they wouldn't have interacted with it in the same way. No, no, because there's, I suppose it's the element of um, danger and the unknown, isn't it? It's that kind of... That could be them. You know, there's jeopardy, isn't there? Yeah, yeah, yeah. You know, because it feels real, it could be that person watching it who is there. I think... They could all, be the exposed yeah. one. All people ever want is authenticity. Yeah. I mean, what people react to is the authentic, and whether you're telling a fictional or factual story, that's what you're trying for, I think. When you talked about Emmerdale being interactive in yeah. the 90s, what, what did you mean by it then? What, what did you do? What we did well, what we did was we had um, a proprietary technology, an early set-top box. We had handsets that people in the house had, and when they watched Emmerdale, they could press a button, and that mm. became the red button as we know it mm. later on. And it would overlay graphics, and the graphics were synchronized to the television program, so they could do several things. They could, if they'd come in halfway through, they could catch up with what had happened. They could, we could turn it into a game show where we were asking questions about the story and the backstory as it was running. So the engine was used for Mastermind and all the quiz shows as well. Mm. Um, but then there was magazine content around it. Now, remember, this is about the same time as the web was emerging. So, <laughs> so yeah. you know, we didn't have the web as an example particularly. So, for instance, I remember on Emmerdale and Coronation Street, we had street maps that you could roll over on your television screen and find out who lived in what house and all that. And it was the contextual, factual stuff, effectively. That's, that's, what, that's what I want now. That's what yeah. we want. <laughs> so, it, well, you couldn't get people to really use it, otherwise those companies would still be thriving. I don't know, maybe. Um, so, what, so would that be instead of watching Coronation Street? Would you still have Coronation Street on your TV no, screen? No, Coronation Street was running underneath it. So you're so overlaid on it was top. Overlaid so you'd, on top. You'd, you'd press a button on a. You'd have like a remotey thing in your hand, yeah. and the maps map would appear. Yeah, you could pull up the map. It was semi-transparent. You could see what was yeah. going off underneath. You know, and I did all sorts of things. I did for one major cartoon, sort of children's uh, channel. I turned that t same sort of thing in the mid two thousands into games that sat over the top of programs. So while you were watching programs. You could play games that were only active in one square of the screen at a time. So it would keep people's eyes fixed on the TV screen and hands what was going off, but actually was two separate things. And there was loads and loads of experiments like this. And they largely failed. I mean, you know, there's none of that technology still around because what happened is the smartphone came out and, and the sort of interactivity moved over to the handset. Well, that doesn't mean that they would have failed had the development money not been put into them, does it? If the smartphone hadn't 
happened. Yeah. So there was a, well, there was a huge amount of money put into these uh, interactive TV systems, a huge amount invested. The ones that you worked on. Yeah, because yeah. we were doing things like early interactive Channel 4 racing. We were putting overlays on racing yeah. so you could place bets through it and you could pull up odds. So it was like super teletext, that, I remember. So it was connected. So Oh, yeah, you... it was connected via a very slow modem so you could update things quickly. So, and then... Where were those kind of changes registered? Do you know what I mean? So well, the, the, you would... If you took part in a quiz, how did... Oh, the process of that, the earliest one, was simply this. We had a we had a playout room, just like a normal TV channel. We had people operating the buttons. We had pre-recorded tapes of the programmes with time codes, and we, we attached everything to the times on the time codes... Um, and people had X number of seconds to answer things according to what was happening on screen. And if there was any overriding needed, the people in the booth would override it live. The signal would go out over the air. This was terrestrial television. Mm. Into the box, stop, you know, uh, do do its work on the app that was running in the box. And then it would ping back via the modem. And that whole modem back to us and then back out would take about 30 seconds. So if somebody played... Um, interactive family fortunes when the show finished mm. within 30 seconds we could send them a top leaderboard and their position on the leaderboard okay so um and so how many people would be playing then in the is it just the experiment yeah it was all I mean, it was all prototype it was all, it was launched as a service that one in particular but it was so, only in a limited area so we only had a few thousand people playing at any one time so but uh, but how many people took part then well like i say a few thousand people so um we actually did run it as a service so it was run as a service we got you know customer complaints we got all the usual stuff services get but did everyone take part who was oh, yeah, no, invited the, the actual to? percentage of people um who picked up the service and had the service actually yeah. did take part in a lot of the shows yeah so it wasn't a failure in terms of um the users no it was a failure in terms of the business um so the the actual the idea itself. In well, the interaction of... mode, and I think the nature of it, and the nature of the fact that people at the time couldn't go online and look something up. Mm. It was pulling up information about who lived in what house in in the in the street. Mm. You know, it would allow you to, a sense that you were playing along with Mastermind. Mm. All of that stuff you still do. You know, if you go on Twitter now and you, uh, when University Challenge is on, it always trends every week. Oh yeah, yeah. And yeah, people, yeah. you know, people are shouting at the screen saying, "Oh, I knew that. I knew that." And I remember back in '94, you know, that almost being our, our company slogan. <laughs> you know, it was all about satisfying that I knew that, and now I can show you. Right. Um, uh, um, yeah. The, well, the BBC, BBC, maybe it was BBC R and D. I'm not sure. They they did that with an app for. Um, the Antiques Roadshow, which I used to actually use, but it's it's not available now. So that was for um, iPad. Yeah, that, um, we did Antiques Roadshow in the 90s, exactly that thing. Okay, so a couple and of we years did it ago. With the BBC permission, obviously we worked with BBC Channel 4 Sky, etc. So there were people who had done all that sort of thing. So the Antiques Roadshow thing was just effectively the same game we'd had all those years before. Okay, yeah, and I think this this worked by um, listening in to the something in the sound that's coming out of your. That's TV. right. Yeah, there's slightly different ways of triggering things, but you know, essentially the experience was the same. 
But that what that reminded me of was, um, well, what was good about that that, that version of the Antiques Roadshow um, game was that it followed what the audience were already doing hmm. rather than making something then trying to get an audience to do it. Well, I think I think this is the thing. I think you know you know all this time on there was an audience by that time, and the fact you were using an iPad means the audience were connected. We didn't have any of that. You know, a lot of the people we had didn't have PCs. Mm. So but, we were fighting uh, all that connectivity issue, effectively. <laughs> um, and fighting the fact people weren't used to interacting. But they, but like, if you remember, there's an episode of the Royal Family where they're, um, they're playing, they're watching the Antiques Roadshow and um, they're betting on how much how much it's going to be worth. Yeah. Se- second, the second's up to where he very says it, and um, it, that it's kind of like the the BBC then went well. People, lots of people are doing that. We're going to try and make an app where you get to. Decide. I know. But what I find ironic about that is, I agree with you. They did, but they'd already done it with us in the nineties. Mm. You know, it's interesting that actually one of the interesting things about those big organisations is they don't seem to have a memory. Mm. Um, because you know we we spent years doing all those prototypes with the BBC's permission because obviously we had to get the producers involved mm. Mm. Uh, because we were broadcasting things over the top of their programs you know um, so they knew about it so they did revive it now I think I think when they saw that royal family episode I, I, th- I think it must have reminded a new generation of producers that actually it's really compelling shouting at the telly mm. Mm. You know? <laughs> yeah 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 yeah. Uh, which is what that comes down to, isn't it? But then, then it also comes down to the well. Why don't we just shout at the telly? Why do we need um, quite a digital help? I don't um, think ever answered that. Tell us a little bit about Kate Modern, and the reason I'm interested in Kate Modern partly is because it was YouTube, but also I remember sitting at a conference with you where somebody was talking, who shall remain nameless, about mm. Kate Modern as if they'd made it themselves. And, and that person said, does anybody here know remember Kate Modern? And you put your hand up and said, yeah, I wrote it. <laughs> I don't remember that. Don't you remember that? Oh, it was uh, a particularly erased moment. That from my <laughs> um, so, well, Kate Modern was actually situated on Bebo, which for younger listeners is like Facebook before Facebook put Bebo out of business, basically. So that was um, one of the early social networking sites. I'd forgotten about Bebo. Yeah, so it was, there was MySpace and Bebo. I thought Kate Modern was YouTube. Yeah, it was. It was Bebo. You were right. It was, it was Bebo, and that's what made it interactive, Yeah. in a sense, was that Bebo were... At that time, and I think uh, it Amanda Shields, who then went to Google and is now in the House of Lords. I'm not sure. I don't yeah, one think. of them is. Yeah. Yeah. Well, she was at Bebo at that time, um, and Bebo were looking into how they could monetize audiences and, um, you know, attract sponsorship and move into the online entertainment field. And in the States on YouTube, and maybe that's what you were thinking of, a couple of guys in the States and their team had come up with a realistic-seeming YouTube blogger 
who called herself the character called herself Lonely Girl. Oh, I am. 15. I'm conflating the two. Yeah, you're absolutely yeah. right. Yeah. So I think it's Lonely Girl 15. Yeah. So she was a 15 year old lonely girl. So she's cute and she's doing her video blogging. And at that time, it was kind of sort of post Blair Witch. Nothing particularly had been done. And it, this is still a really contentious field that isn't doesn't quite work. Um, this kind of alternate reality within the reality kind of thing. So you're not really framing it properly. You're just saying this is this looks really real and it's when it's not flagged up as a fiction, a show. Um, but you know, discerning viewers quickly realised that it was a show and it got a lot of followers. So, in terms of a, a traditional TV drama, like a kind of, um, I don't know, Heroes or Lost or something, it's got this kind of sci-fi cultish story of a girl being drawn into that cult and sort of mythical sort of bloodletting and those kinds of things, girls being kidnapped and all that kind of thing, mm. um, done for a very, very, very low budget. Um, and it proved a point that lots and lots of viewers and fans could be attracted to something on YouTube that was plonked in without any marketing and no budget. So on the back of that, they got a bit of money, did a deal with Bebo, uh, possibly the London offices, and devised a entirely new uh, show for Bebo, which would be based around video blogging by characters, and they called it Cape Modern, which is obviously a pun play on Tape Modern. Now, after I made my Geist, my alternate reality game, I'd gone to LA on the back of that, meeting people who had, were kind of the forefathers of alternate reality games, who were, called, who were 42 Entertainment at the time, uh, Steve Peters and others. I'd met with them, and I was out there kind of trying to drum up some kind of interest and trade and see what else I could do next, maybe raise some money. And I met another alternate reality game producer, um, called Jan Libby. She calls herself Stories, Stories with three or four E's. There's quite a few women in this field. And um, I met with her in Santa Monica, and she said, you know, the guys made Lonely Girl 15 are uh, starting a thing in London, and they're looking for writers. And so I, my last day in L.A., I went and met with them, and they kind of offered me the job. So right. back, back in London... I started production on that and I became one of the kind of story creators and script writers for that season one of that. What I did say to them, so they had this kind of idea that a really popular character would be a posh English girl who'd been to a public school, that that was a, that would be a thing that worked. And I said, well, actually, that's not going to work. You know, people aren't going to relate to her. They're not going to like her. Um, and she needs to be in an every... I think it's worth saying, if anybody listens to this and they're abroad outside the UK, a public school is a private school. Oh, yeah, pri it's, private It's a school. stupid quirk of the English. Yes, it certainly is. It is, yeah. <laughs> so, the, you know, it may be that for certain American audiences, they see 
um, upper class, middle to upper class English people, a bit like Downton Abbey or whatever, that's very popular and that that is bound to work in any circumstance. But what we know is that certainly British people won't see that favourably. They won't, you know, unless unless they're a comedy character, they won't feel on a par with an, a kind of everyday posh girl unless they're in another period in history altogether and or something like that, you know. But they didn't change that. And in the end, that was the problem. And they actually ended up replacing the actress, getting rid of Kate and keeping the other characters who were much more kind of your East End. Um, much more street. Yeah. Yeah. But again, it was a um, it was a soap opera um, with a sci-fi, un, you know, undertones in, well, not undertones, in your face, sci-fi hokum. Which was that again in the in the world of Lonely Girl fifteen with this kind of cult and so um, how was the interactivity handled? Right, so each Bebo account page like Facebook um, has little um, has ways in which each person can have their friends and followers interact with them. So you can leave comments, so you can post your own videos, leave comments, comment back on your friends, um, attach little. Um, widgets and you know um, sort of proto apps where you can draw pictures and all that kind of thing so we used each character in the soap had their own page and each day a different character would post a new short video so the content we were making was in video terms was a kind of very short video but being uploaded every day and because of my background with improvisation and writing and comedy and all of that I developed the um, idea that we could use the comments as a a live interaction from character with the fans so uh, the audience for this we called fans rather than players so that was the interaction so um, they could say hey Charlie saw your video you better watch out for that guy etc and she would say oh no I'm sure he's fine um, how are you and this kind of thing you know so a really nice personable um, immediate interaction took place and that really developed a nice relationship with the fans and those who didn't want to particularly interact on that level could could look in and watch and then out of game as it were out of that fictional universe there was a Kate Modern page on Bebo where each week all of the videos were um, available to be seen together so that it wasn't too difficult for people to catch up and see it as a fiction. So that's kind of moving on from what we were doing with the alternate reality games, where we never admitted it was a fiction. Yeah. You know, we never let you see behind the curtain. So that was the kind of interactivity. Plus, once a month, there was a live event. So what I'd been doing, which I'd learned from alternate reality games and from my street theatre background, was to have actual places, actual events where the players or fans would come and take part in or witness part of the story for in in real life rather than just on the computer. Mm. So we had that happen as well. And of course that was that was filmed and then that was put online too. And the device that we used for the video was that a bit like Cloverfield, which is 
that, of course, you know, if, if it's meant to be video blogging, then there's no invisible camera person. You know, the camera is always there being held by a, a character. So you're always referring to the fact that the camera is being held. And that's uh, that's a trope now, in particularly in cinema. Just briefly, if you could talk, because you mentioned Cloverfield. I know you did work for J.J. Abraham's um, Star nice Trek movie. Nice segue. Yeah, no, well, I know. <laughs> Um, I mean, just talk for a minute about the, the, you know, notion of work. I mean, people can search for that, and there's tons of stuff around about that online. But you, you worked on the Star Trek ARG for the first reboot Star Trek movie. Yes, that came about because obviously J.J. Uh, Abrams had um, created and directed Lost, a TV show which was deliberately mysterious and left many clues. And had something of an online presence as well. Um, and J.J. Abrams himself was aware of the alternate reality games, some of which had been created as extra stuff for movie fans, science fiction movie fans to do online. In the first well, there was a whole um, whole plethora of stuff around Lost, wasn't there, from books that featured in the series to... Yeah, know, yeah. After and the that... all sorts. Right, yeah, so that was one of the first really mainstream experiments with what is now defined as transmedia. You know, different ways in, multi-platform, as it were, different ways into a story universe that gives just, you know, more and more pleasure and interest to to fans. So J.J. Abrams was, um, was a fan of that himself. And being, a, you know, being a fan is what has made him a success as a director with Star Trek and Star Wars. To cut a long story short, he wanted to have something of an alternate reality game around the launch of his first Star Trek movie, and that somehow went through the market. That well, that often went through marketing budgets, that kind of thing. And it went through the marketing budget and came to the London offices of Paramount Distributors. They had a small bit of budget, which they had to then do the bidding of JJ, the director. And someone said, he wants this sort of alternate reality game thing, whatever that's supposed to be. We have no idea. What shall we do? It so happens that the people who make the viral video campaigns for Paramount London's movie launches are based in Bristol. They're oh. called Rubber Republic, and they're friends of mine. So it came to them. J.J. Abrams wants uh, an alternate reality game for the launch of the movie, and it fits in with our budget, and it's got to be sort of UK, a bit of Germany, and a bit of France. Just, we're just going to fudge it around. Can, what can you do? So they said, "Who can we? Who can we call?" Hazel Green. So um, that turned into one of the most fun jobs I've ever done. So that meant going back back to old school alternate reality gaming, which was creating. And it wasn't just us in Bristol. There was uh, kind of some digital guys in London and other parts of the country who were creating crazily difficult physics puzzles and all kinds of stuff. Um, and directions were coming from through JJ's uh, bad robot producer, 
whose name I can't remember, I'm sorry, um, Dave, JJ would like this. We've got this Romulan storyline at this end. So they were producing some of the kind of serious side of the story to do with the Romulans um, crash landing on Earth and that kind of thing. So they were feeding us that because that dovetailed into the beginning of that movie when a Romulan spaceship comes through a wormhole. I don't know if you remember. I, I saw the movie, yeah. That's I'm what aware happens. of it. So it was, <laughs> yeah, it was kind of um, expanding on that part of the, the story. I mean, this, this kind of went big budget, didn't it? Because I know you got, I say big budget, I mean, obviously attached to anything that high profile uh, is going to make it seem bigger than it you know, probably is. But you did have, I know, contributions, I think, from people like Leonard Nimoy and stuff in there. Well, and... Yeah, well, that was J.J. Abrams pulling favours at yeah. the other end. So again, like I've done with my first ARG, we were kind of making it up as we went along. And it ran for several weeks. Um, so there was lots of these sort of online puzzles for, the, for them to solve. They used the Star Trek forum online. So there was a real mixture of people who had no idea what was going on. They were, they were Star Trek fans who were just looking up the, about the film and they could see all these people. Thought, what the hell are they doing there? They seem to be trying to solve something. So they'd follow some links. So they the the people who were playing this game, there's usually several thousand, tens of thousands, were doing it that way. So we were following them in various forums and creating loads of content. Some of it from me, uh, were, I was playing kind of uh, characters, blokes called Jeff in Berkshire who were emailing because <laughs> they'd found a U, UFO crash landing site. And things like that. And then we had a, a French friend of ours who we pretended we had him with a, he'd found a sort of a Romulan intercom device, which we had to have made exactly according to the, um, you know, to the film production values. So that was exciting and expensive. Things like that. So we used everything that was free that we possibly could. And this is the this is the characteristic, the nature of digital storytelling as a grassroots phenomenon. You know, this is this yeah. is the democratization of reaching audiences. You know, it, we use everything that's open and free. You were a creative director at Ardman Digital for a while, and you're now lecturing at UWE, um, mm -hmm. among other things. Um, mm. And th that kind of brings us up to date. What I'm, what I'm sort of interested in then is, if you think back over that sort of decade, and I mean, those things we've talked about there are absolutely amazing and groundbreaking, but, you know, one of the things I think you've said to me before in conversations that, you felt that established media often hasn't taken much notice of these um, interactive narratives and games and things that sit around that, and that, that maybe advertising has taken it much more seriously. Yeah. Maybe somehow it has, but that would... That's still kind of counterintuitive if I say that broadcasting didn't take it up because of the business model being yeah. like zero um, and the scale, its scalability, you know. 
small amount of people having a really good time um, and paying nothing for it is, you know, contrary to how both broadcasting and advertising has worked from its beginnings until now when it's, you know, everything's been blown apart and they're trying to decide what to do. In a way, broadcast media has been struggling with this type of thing, whereas I think advertisers have had yeah. to go and find audiences. Exactly. So, yeah, so they went and found people and because they are, you know, targeting certain demographics, specific demographics, often younger demographics, they found them online. Mm. And now, of course, on their smartphones and using social media. So advertisers went there, went and found them there. It's not new in that McDonald's built children's playgrounds next to schools with, and Ronald McDonald was there to entice the children in to McDonald's. <laughs> that's, that's true. So it's kind of a bit like that. And so advertisers were toying with, experimenting with ways in which to engage demographics online I mean, it, 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 it's true you know my eight-year-old son if if you look on my somewhere on my website i've got him filmed a couple of years ago i asked him you know what do you think about tv and he said tv sucks and i said why and he said you can't get what you want when you want it mm. you know and for him as an eight-year-old he lives online you know but he, yeah but... he's just today had to ask me how to find itv on a standard freeview television to watch Ninja Warrior. You know, he doesn't actually know the thing about entering a number in to find a channel. All right. Which I think is a, to me, it's, it's stunning. You know, it, it's a complicated I mean, part, yeah. yeah, I mean, part, I mean, there's, I mean, obviously there's iPlayer and there's 4OD and. Well, all the online uh, catch up services, absolutely. But, but there's no scheduling and they are click on demand and they are, you know. Yeah. Um, and ITV, is ITV a bit more restricted? I don't know. I don't know. And Netflix is producing its own stuff now. You know, it's, it's, it's changing in that There's way. There's also but... the rise of the, the YouTuber, you know, making people, yeah. young people, making content for young people. Well, that's another part yeah. of advertising that I've recently been involved, involved yeah. with through um, this kind of crazy digital experimentation community that I am involved with in Bristol, uh, which we should talk about, really, the Pervasive Media Studio. Mm-hmm which I've been a member of since 2007, since it opened, 2008. Um, by hanging around there, I get, I've got to do most of the creative new technology emerging platform experiments that I've done in those years. Um, and recently, I just helped out, really, with a, a, a small company who their client was xbox but it was it kind of opened my eyes actually um to the fact that advertisers were totally zoned straight in to these young people who have millions of followers um on youtube and we did a bit of filming with um a couple of these young guys who had made a lot of money out of their really low-budget videos of themselves just being really enthusiastic about playing uh, particular 
um, console game and had millions of followers because of it. And yeah, they are bringing in the revenue. And well, the I, I um, are, are paying, the advertisers are paying for that. You know, that's why. But they're enthusiasm and they're not spending any money on their videos. And and while we were out filming with them, young lads walking their dogs and etc. were stopping and asking to have their photographs taken yeah. with them because they recognise them. Well, that's my son. He's um, if I ever hear Stampy Longnose laugh again, I'm going to strangle him. But. Uh... You know, he's a classic case in point. The guy has built his own media business off the back of playing games. Can't you get your son to um, start his own? He has got three videos online and he's starting to do it. At okay, eight so years old. How, eight? Is it, how old is he? Eight? Eight. Yeah, yeah, that's that's old enough, Richard. Yeah. I think, I think, you know. <laughs> no, you but I mean, think, point. You got to think your, you know, your pension fund isn't what it could be. I'm sure you know. Well, my pension fund's fine. Um, okay. <laughs> it's one thing I have got. Um, so I think, I think advertisers have gone where the audiences are. I think it's something that you have said before when I've seen you speak that you had issues with, you know, not issues, but finding the audience for these things because sometimes. Yeah. Some of these interactive stories that sit around things that we don't know whether they call them transmedia or interactive or whatever. They're just stories, really. Um, They do take a while to find an audience and that audience isn't necessarily visible. See, again, it's it's funny, isn't it? It's when we talk about the YouTubers and how, how popular they are that again, it's not fiction, is it? They're just being no. themselves. No, you're right. It isn't, you know, or a version of themselves. They're creating. But they do create you know, fiction. I mean, yeah, you know, I'm not saying they're thought, not, or I'm saying it's a certain, you know, it's it, it's not, they're not um, fictional characters no, in the traditional way. Not in the traditional way. I mean, Stampy is a good case in point in that I've watched Stampy, you know, Stampy's Race to the Moon, which is a complete in the Minecraft world story arc, you know, but it is about them playing the game in order to do this. So I don't know if it's a story so much as in a traditional sense. It is a story, clearly, but um, I don't know. Is Stampy a fictional character? No, is it well, a, Stampy Longos is just the guy's uh, online name, so his YouTube channel comes under that name. But um, he's a gamer, you know. Right. Okay. So he's a real person. He's not. A, so he's a real person. Not someone in a. In a no. And Stampy and his mates online set challenges, and they issue videos every day along these challenges, and these challenges are effectively stories. They're not effectively. I don't. He shouldn't even use the word. They just are stories. <laughs> You know, Stampy's race to the moon, or whatever it was called, is about him and his mates using Minecraft to get to the Minecraft moon, you know, and all that sort of stuff. And the the challenges they face. But it is always couched in non-fictional terms. And then it's a challenge. They're trying to overcome something. Whereas they are not putting themselves into a character in the game as such. It wouldn't look authentic. Because you've got... um... It's the low budgetness video, YouTube, you know, small screen, etc. Yeah. It only looks authentic if, if it's a real person or something's very, very real about it. Do you know what I mean? That kind of, that low budget handheld feel. I mean, it isn't authentic, is it, in reality? But it somehow feels authentic. Yeah. So if you try and do something fictional... It doesn't look authentic because you haven't got enough budget. So this is what I'm, this is what I'm trying to sort of get at is mm. that you know fictional story worlds are obviously still extremely popular, and it's not that we're turning away from them. But at the moment, 
they are television-based, long-form. The most successful ones are long-form television um, dramas like Game of Thrones, I don't know, Breaking Bad, and etc., etc., etc. And ours, you know, Sherlock, the miniseries, but Sherlock's incredibly popular worldwide. Mm. So that kind of television craft is still very much in demand for fiction. So what do we do when we are aiming to create fictional worlds using open source media and we have very little budget except for maybe a bit of marketing budget for something else well you have a restriction don't you what i mean i'm summarizing here i think correctly that what you're saying is that if you put the money in you can make incredibly good complex long-form dramas that people do want to watch and i mean things like game of thrones is an incredibly long-form drama you know it's five series and counting or whatever Mm. Um, it start, started with novels, though. You know, no, 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 I get that. And, and literature is the start. Literature is the start for most of these successful franchises. But it is incredibly long. But it is also costly. Whereas you get to Sherlock, and Sherlock isn't quite so long in the sense of the typical British way of only producing three episodes. But the three episodes are ninety minutes, so you're yeah. getting effectively three feature films worth, which is a long story. You know, and that's the best we can afford in Britain, and, yeah. and, it's, and it's done spectacularly well. I mean, we, and we are brilliant at costume drama as but well. But then there are kids yeah. like Stampy who are on YouTube. He's got four million followers regularly, four million viewers, and he's making twenty-minute videos, mm. which are just screen grabs. You know, which are just recording him playing games with virtually no money. Mm. And yet, Basically. I would say my son finds that a more compelling drama in some ways than some of the stuff he sees on television. Yeah, I guess, I mean, you know, I guess it's down to individual tastes. And we're not saying that it's neither or a situation. No, of course not. We're saying, ever is. I mean, I've not seen Mr. Stampy, but it sounds really, <laughs> really creative to me. You know, excited how creative and joyful. I'm His trying to make new words here. His audience you know. love him. You know. That is fantastic. Uh, my my biggest thrill is the idea of audiences really loving stuff because audiences don't want things to fail. They don't want to be disappointed. They don't want things to be rubbish. They want to love things. They, they're, they're crossing their fingers for anyone who makes anything. And um, I love it when it pays off. And it's really interesting to see what actually makes that work and it isn't money is it or special effects well this this brings me back to something else you said i think uh to me before that that you felt that um you know in a way the the attempts at making interactive narratives transmedia narratives whatever you want to call them args 10 years ago were more complex but yet, in recent years, you think storytellers have made their ideas more simple for lots of reasons. Um, and in some ways, they've become more real. And they've often crossed back over into the real world much more now in order to convey the story. I mean, could you expand a little bit on what, you know, what, what, what sort of lies behind that? You know, I think, I think the words you used were striking to me because you mentioned um, producing minimum viable products and, and that's a, a project management term you know in the sense that you, you produce the basic version of the website or whatever you launch it and then you do the iterative improvements mm -hmm. and you, mm -hmm. you've sort of mentioned this that, that that you feel things have become quite stripped back but they've got really sort of to the nub of the idea more 
Yeah, yeah, and it may be it's um, it's a question of the the people involved have gone th- you know gone through ten years or so, um, and I'm I suppose I'm only speaking of the people that I know particularly who are making digital interactive um, stories experiences. And also, as we've talked about, the technology has become much more integrated and much more mainstream. Mm-hmm. So that's kind of, in a sense, taken away the necessity of having different bits of technology can only work in certain circumstances. And I think it's become a bit slicker and a bit more pared down and mainstream because of the smartphone being what it is in a way. As for the people, we, we've gone through a kind of highly experimental phase where we tried everything as it should be. And, and maybe now, you know, we still haven't earned enough money. Suddenly, <laughs> <laughs> didn't mean to kind of get all choked up there. I was like, <laughs> got a little bit of a dry throat from talking. Um, we haven't made, uh, maybe, you know, I'm just Quick, speculating. Well, you know, we haven't easy. made our fortunes. We, we you know, we, we haven't had a hit. We, you know, we still haven't reached that thing. So we've got to the point where, well, we've just got to produce a product that mm. um you know and some of the people i've spoken to have said um like uh alex fleetwood who is a, is a veteran of uh and i'm sure you wouldn't mind me describing him as that although he's younger than me um oh he is a veteran ve- I've, I've seen him around <laughs> for years yeah yeah uh you know um a veteran of real world games and trying every kind of platform from paper through to the most sophisticated software to deliver experiences and try experimenting with these sort of things. Uh, I think he said to me recently, well, I, I now just make things people love, which sounds trite, but I'll just put it in context. We were, you know, we're talking about what do you do when you, you know, you, you, we tried all these complex things and we're trying, we need to make money. You know, you have to make a living and have a proper, um, have a proper job doing this and to focus on something and put all the learning we've had into one product is probably a more satisfying and more efficient way of using all the learning that we have learned over the past 10 or 15 years. And I'm just trying to think of the now, the, the game. It's an actual physical tabletop game like a toy he's doing fabulous beasts isn't he fabulous beasts yeah yeah so that that was alex's example of saying well let's make make things people love but it is product and that's by no means to say that that is in any way a step backwards or you know uh, a negative step or anything like that it's that's but that's that's what lots of people are concentrating on steve peters who i mentioned earlier who's now um, who, who was like the forefather of alternate reality games. Um, his latest project, which I, I was quite honoured and happy to be a little bit involved in, was called Dark Detours. So that was an, um, a social media Halloween story, which he made with Alison Norrington, who's very much interested in the digital story world and is a writer herself. That was a, really a Twitter, Facebook, I think Google Plus, mini ARG, where really you, you, you followed a couple of characters on Halloween in a traditional 
horror story which ended up on Dartmoor and um, there were ve- there's various creatures and deaths and that kind of thing. But um, that was a very simple, you know, it's about a product. We're no longer saying, you know, this is not a game. We're saying this is a product. This is an experience. We're having to, I think there's something that Pete, uh, sorry, Steve Peters described very well once when I saw him speak in San Francisco was that if you think of the novel, when it was novel, yeah. you know, the the, ta- the page turner, you know, the actual, the idea that a story would be contained within pages, uh, trying to explain to people how they should do that. Yeah. And, and the, the experiments, when you think of the experiments that people like, um, well, you know, like Robinson Crusoe, like, uh, def- you know, uh, Daniel Defoe and certainly Jane Austen and Mary Shelley. That what they, they the experience they did within the novel. They were using the the diary form and letters, and they were, you know, Defoe published Robinson Crusoe uh, anonymously as a true story. That's of, right. Of a of a you know a man marooned, and um, so it's in a way no different. Well, I don't um, think it is different at all, is it? I mean, there are still people publishing things, like you said, that go on purport to be real, um, but obviously aren't once you dig in. And, and it's it, it's a way of trying to give authenticity. Yeah. Um, but also, you know, you have to somehow, this is what we're struggling with, uh, with, with a book, well, even a digital book, you know how many pages it is, you know how long the thing is going to be, you know, long, mm. what, it, what you need to do. You turn the page just to read the next bit. You can't, we, we sort of know that mechanic. Um, a film, you kind of know it's so many minutes long and you kind of sit there and you watch it and you try not to shout, <laughs> you know, that kind of thing. We, it, it's, we're still trying to learn what to do. In the past 10 years, we've been trying to teach people what to do with the things we were experimenting with and and some people really 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 enjoyed it and many other people it was you know they weren't that kind of person it didn't think, reach think, that you know so so are you saying then that, that you know in the last 10 years we've gone from what were effectively computer-based things through smartphones and back out into real life objects so we've got you know great things like Hello lampposts that occurred in in Bristol where you could talk mm-hmm. the street furniture via your phone. We've got people building things with Arduinos and Raspberry Pis, objects that react to you. Yeah. Um, we've got much more robotics that in which there's potential for storytelling there, and there are real life objects around you that you can interact with. But that the, in a way, the ARGs and going back standard narratives right back to Robinson Crusoe, mm-hmm. the framework they established are still driving the sort of form if you like the yeah the thing with ARGs was that they were partly in the real world as well yeah. that was the thing that was so a the, crucial step wasn't it yeah the technology was just a bit kind of separate and clunky before smartphones or before sensors got cheaper and more miniature before we had Arduino and Raspberry Pi and open source platforms like that so, but it was about you might see an advert in a shop window and it's suddenly it's got your name on it. You know, ARGs were as much about that and illusion and magic and street theatre. Um, but the, the kinds of things you've just mentioned, like um, Hello Lamppost, the Playable City competition, which comes out each year um, from Bristol, and it's now worldwide. There's a whole school of um, terminology which calls that 
transmedia now. Yeah. Now that that, that, I, that might be another discussion for another day, Richard, because I, I, I get that. Yeah. I, I tend to think that that is a almost an anti grassroots term, which is going to drive those things. Oh, this goes back to that the... early comment, you know, about digital. What's the point sticking the word digital in front of anything anymore? It's all digital. It's all trans. It's all interactive at some point. Yeah, there's that. But yeah. if you put a hook on it like transmedia, what I'm saying is that that then is that's taking it away from the grassroots and the democratising. It's making it a movement. It's no, it's making it a commercial entity. Ah, it's making okay. it. It's making it an industry. Oh, that, now that, what, that's the thing—the industrialization of it. Yeah, and yeah. what? It, and it leaves a lot of people behind who, you know, who are not going to make any money out of it. Well, I think um, it's partly a success. I've got game. a feeling it may very well be the same groups that have always been left behind. So that was Richard Adams speaking to Hazel Grian. As I said before, it's a bit of an old recording, but my gosh, hasn't Hazel done a lot of really cool stuff? Plus, you can tell that there are some really difficult subjects in the area of digital storytelling that are quite challenging to work out. Actually, what does the future look like for that whole industry? For those that are interested, the music for today came from Josh Woodford, which was the last track. And the other track was by a band called Jazar. So in other news, we've got a bit of an update. So we recently had a Technique event at the V&A as part of their Digital Design Weekend, which went really well. We had three artists there, Rachel Ara, then Nick Rothwell, and finally Shelley James. And each of them were awesome speakers. So thanks very much to anyone that's listening to this who came to that talk. And I'm delighted to say we've also got another event coming up. The next event is slightly different. It's going to be a networking event for artists that are using technology in some way. And it's going to be held at IBM's building in London South Bank. It's on the 19th of October from 6 till 8pm. And there's going to be a bit of a panel discussion at the event about artificial intelligence and its role in the creative process. So if you're an artist who is using technology in some way, and this sounds interesting to you, you can find out more on the Technique website, technique.create-hub.com. And of course, while you're at it, why not check out CreateHub as well? That's create-hub.com. There's always lots more articles by people who are exploring technology in the cultural industries in some way, whether for a cultural organisation like a museum or a theatre or otherwise as an individual artist who's creating something with technology. Anyway, that's all we've got time for this month. We'll be back again next month with another interview with an artist talking about how they're using technology. In the meantime, take very good care of yourselves.
design thinking has exploded into the workplace of the 21st century, putting humans at the heart of design. Or does it? Isn't it just the post-it note workshops? More importantly though, where did it come from? How did it become such a massive industry? And where on earth is it going? Is design thinking what is taught in design schools? And can it be used as a philosophy for the future? Find out more as we, Richard Adams and Sam Fry, explore these ideas with experts in the field on our first Technique mini-series about design thinking. Subscribe to this podcast so that you don't miss an episode.